Hi there, everybody. Uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Hope. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege, really, uh, to stand here in front of you today and share with you a message from the Word of God. Um, I can't believe it's already August. I don't know if you're with me there. I don't know. I feel like COVID has thrown the sense of our time all out of whack. Like sometimes life seems like it's moving away so fast. Other times it's like every day is the same thing. Um, but it's already August. Here we are, August 1st. And August is actually a special month to me because it's my birth month. All right. I'm not going to tell you when it is. Okay. Uh, but I turned 39 this month. I, I know. I know. I know I look like I, I'm going to turn 29, right? My, wait, why'd you laugh? <laughs> My students think that I, I should turn 49, but, uh, you know, whatever. When you're like 19, you don't know, you know? Just kidding. I love you guys. Uh, but, yeah, I'm turning 39, and um, I got to say, it's been pretty tough. Uh, I, I think what I'm experiencing is uh, midlife crisis, right? <laughs> like, have you been there before, midlife crisis? Don't nod. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you. Um, I know that some of you are a few years ahead of me uh, in this thing that we call life, okay? And this is serious. Like, if you have wisdom or encouragement for me, please tell me, okay? Like, I need it, right? Um, and for others, you guys are, you know, younger than me and all that, but I know that you guys relate by uh, something called quarter-life crisis. And those of you who are wondering what that is, it's a thing, okay? Like, it's like an actual thing. It's a quarter-life crisis, okay? But as they say that... Midlife, a person's midlife starts around 40, right? And I'm looking at 40 now, right? Turning 39, I'm thinking, okay, I'm 40, I'm 40, I'm 40. I don't know why I do that, but I do. I've been struggling. And if I can summarize for you how I've been struggling, uh, it's this. I feel like my life now has become less about potential and more about present. Does that make sense? I'm struggling because my life feels like it's less about potential and more about present. You know, my life in many ways is really great. You know, I have an amazing family. Uh, I've been in pastoral ministry for 10 plus years now. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of used to what I do. A lot of things are the same, right? Routine. Uh, things feel comfortable and secure. It's all good, right? But I remember when I was much younger, right, like when I was 20 years old, let's say, my life was all about the future, right? The potential of it, right? I could have had bad days or I could have great days, but I knew that something would happen to me along the way, right? And I was curious, like, oh, who am I going to marry? Or what's my child going to be like? Or what am I going to do for a living? And where will I live? And like all of these questions that I was asking, and they're very exciting because you represented potential and possibility. Well, fast forward 20 years later, I like really don't know what happened the past 20 years, but like it went fast, now I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking, well, if the Lord gives me maybe 20, 25 years of good working year, oh, I realized it's probably going to be more of the same thing over and over again, if that makes sense. And that thought, it scared me. It wasn't comforting. And what it's been doing for me, spiritually speaking, is it's, it's been forcing me to ask more of self-centered questions rather than God-centered questions. Meaning I'm starting to ask myself questions like, have I done enough? Am I accomplished enough? Did I save enough money for retirement? I mean, is there more to life? 
Should I continue this route? It's really pushing me to just focus on what I want and what I want to know in life instead of saying, well, what is the Lord's will for me for the rest of my life, however long that may be? You know, if you're a believer, and I'm guessing many of you are, uh, I think we all agree that God-centered living, God-centeredness is the desirable thing rather than self-centeredness, right? But what does that really mean? Like, what does self-centeredness look like and God-centeredness look like? And perhaps more importantly, what, is, what does Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, God's own Son, the Messiah, have to do with our God-centered living? Does that make sense? So what does self-centeredness, God-centeredness look like? And what does Jesus have to do with it all? If you would please open up with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22 is the word for us today. Scripture today is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. And I'm going to read out of the ESV. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask you for your grace now. As we sit here and listen, Lord, help this time to be a, a communing time with the living God. Speak to us, God, in your Holy Spirit, the truth, life, and love that we all need to hear, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to read this text in a vacuum, right, like without any context, um, it, it really wouldn't be like an outstanding type of Bible text that I would be curious about. I feel like if I were to just be given this text on a blank sheet of paper, I would read it and I would just kind of move on. Here's what I mean. It says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, right? Well, God has raised up many, many prophets in the Bible, right? And that's nothing really new, right? Okay, cool, all right? God's going to raise up a prophet, and this prophet is going to speak my word. Once again, not unusual. Yeah, of course. God's going to raise up his prophet, speak his word, right? The prophet's going to speak God's word, and this prophet is going to keep what is spoken. Okay, good, right? And then the text talks about that there are false prophets, false prophets who, who will either speak something that God has not commanded to speak or speak something in the name of some other gods, right? Again, I've seen that before. I've read that before. It's all over the Bible. Nothing new here. And then it says, 
you can tell the difference between the two by seeing whether the word that is spoken comes true or not. Once again, pretty reasonable, right? So if I were to just read this text, I'm thinking, okay, makes sense, what's next? But of course, any biblical text is to be read within its context, right? At seminary, they would say that context is king, which is wrong, because Jesus is king. Huh. See what I did there, right? Uh, but context is king, right? You know what I'm trying to say. So if we were to read it in context, okay, the larger literary context of Deuteronomy 18 is Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 26, which is the section that Pastor Steve covered last Sunday. It's the ceremonial law. It's the secondary law, if you will. After the primary law of loving the Lord your God with all that we have, this is the law that covers practical lives like worship service, how we treat one another, what to eat, what not to eat, how to wash hands, when to do certain things. These kind of things is what Israelite is given again the second time as they are about to go into the promised land, right? Remember, their context is that they're about to go into the promised land. In that kind of context, we have a short text that says God's going to raise up a prophet. Now, the location of this text itself then, it should be a sign for us. It's an alarm for us to stop here and say, what is the Lord really trying to say by raising this prophet? Because this entire section is supposed to be about these little laws that Israelites were supposed to follow. You following my point here, right? The location itself is already a message. Right? And then the immediate context of Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22 is, of course, the section right above it, verses 9 through 14. And if your Bible is like mine, it will say a subtitle, and mine says abominable practices. It may not say it, depending on which version you're reading and when your Bible was published and all of that. But many of yours will say abominable practices. These are practices that God thinks are abominable or detestable or are evil in the Lord's eyes. And these practices, when you read those verses, include things like child sacrifice, fortune-telling, divination, inquiring of the dead. These were the practices that people of Canaan, again, the promised land, right? Israelites had conquered in Deuteronomy 1 through 3, the east of the Jordan River, and they were about to go into the west of the Jordan River, which is Canaan. That's the promised land, their new normal, if you will. These Canaanites, people who were living in that land, were doing these things, and the Lord says that that's evil to me. So then the message, when we read verse 15, it's not just that God will raise up a prophet and you will listen to him, which is sensible, but it's that God will raise up a prophet and you will listen to him instead of, instead of listening to these fortune tellers, these people who give child sacrifices, these people who inquire of the dead, these people who perform these kind of divinations, instead of listening to them, like these people that you're about to conquer, you, Israel, my people, are supposed to do it differently, and they're doing it differently by raising a prophet, right? I'm gonna raise a prophet and you listen to him. Now, when we were to dig in, if we were to dig in just a little bit further, right? This is a change in perspective, right? Because on one side, you have these abominable practices, right? That is searching for what I want to know from God, right? Here's what I mean. Um, I don't know if any of you are into like fortune telling, okay? That's kind of weird, right? But like it's kind of there in our lives, right? For example, like when we go to Panda Express, 
know what I'm saying? Like, half those things are not even fortune either. Like, I crack up the cookie, and it says, oh, you are a kind person. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> right on. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Is that a fortune? <laughs> like, not really. Um, but, you know, some people do, like, horoscopes, and it's kind of fun, right? Like, in a way, it seems a little innocent, right? And so I'm not trying to, like, argue that here necessarily. Like, I, I do have my own thoughts, okay? And honestly, I would rather have you not do it. Like, that's, that's where I'm at if you're curious, right? But... These fortune-telling, inquiring of the dead, palm reading, tarot cards, divinations, all of these things, right? In essence, what people are doing there is seeking what I want from God. I want to know what my future is going to be like. Therefore, I'm going to go get my palm read. I want to know who I'm going to marry. I want to know what my future career is going to be like, how much money I'm going to have, or what my life is going to be, what my family is going to be like in the future. So I'm going to go search for some sort of spiritual entity so that I can hear what I want. That's the attitude and the posture that's represented here in the immediate context, abominable practices. I would call that self-centeredness. So then what God is doing is the opposite. It's God-centeredness. Because what God is doing here is, no, no. These people are doing that. These people are just interested in wanting to know what they want to know. But what I want you to do is this. I'm going to raise up a prophet. I'm going to speak to that prophet. Not, not me, God. God's going to speak to that prophet. And that you, my people, will listen to that instead. It's a different paradigm. It's a God-centeredness paradigm. Because instead of saying, God, I'm going to search for what I want, what's in it for me, what's my life going to be like, so you tell me, essentially what Israelites are commanded to do is, no, what does God want? What is God saying to us? You see the picture here? In context, there are two different paradigms, two different ways of living. And I think many of you who are believers in Jesus know all too well that even participating in church service and leading other people in your prayer and Bible reading can all very much be self-centered rather than God-centered. Is that right? Now, I wonder, as we go into a quote-unquote new normal, to be honest, I don't even know what new normal is anymore. I'm like so confused now. Like there's like Delta variant and like, do I have to wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Like, I don't know, you know. But if we can just say that spiritually speaking, which is the spirit with which we started this series, right? Deuteronomy, choose life, right? It's a new normal. What do we want as a church? Well, we want to be God-centered. If we can all buy that here, right? Then I do wonder what our lives and what our posture and attitude and hearts have been more like. Have we been searching from God things of what we want? Or have we been more mindful of the things that God wants to say to us? Again, different type of perspective here. I have a friend. Um, thank God, I have a friend. <laughs> I have a lot of friends, okay? I have like 1,700 Facebook friends, all right? Thank you. Uh, um, but my, my two closest friends... Uh, they're both pastors, or one guy is not anymore. You know, he's doing more of like a nonprofit work. But um, the Lord has really blessed me with these two brothers because we went to college together, and we spent a lot of our like what would what we would call BC days, right, before Christ days, uh, together. And um, we ran into each other at at seminary, right, at seminary library. And in shock, we did that like the Spider-Man meme thing, like 
You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> if you don't know what, it's not important, okay? It's not important, but it's pretty funny, though. You know, it's pretty funny. We're like, you're a dirty sinner. <laughs> like, you shouldn't be here. Security, you know, <laughs> like these guys. Yeah, they're, they're dirty sinners. <laughs> no, we all are, of course. Um, but one friend, one of those two guys, um, <laughs> he, um, he's a praying man. He's a really praying man. And, and I say this because, not, not just because the amount of time that he spends in prayer, which he does a lot. Uh, and I'm not even saying that of like, you know, uh, of the intensity with which he prays, right? Which there is a lot. Um, I say that my friend, this friend is a praying person because the, the attitude with which he prays, right? His prayer, more or less, is spent towards wanting to know what God is trying to do in his life, right? And again, you know, please don't get me wrong. There is value and humility in making requests to God, right? We, we, we should. It's right for us to do that. God is our father. God is your father, and he loves you, right? And he wants to give you things, right? But as we grow in our faith, right, I think we should be searching for more of what God wants rather than what we want to know from God. God-centeredness Wanting to know what God wants to reveal to us. In fact, my friend, he's a college and young adult pastor at a local church in San Diego. And uh, one time, his senior pastor, he came up to my friend and was like, hey, uh, so could you uh, throw this event for your age group? And he said, uh, I'll pray about it. And I was like, well, you said what? <laughs> to your boss? Like, and then after a couple weeks of prayer, he went up to his boss and said, uh, the Lord says no. So Pastor Steve, next time, no, <laughs> that's really scary. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but really, I mean, it, it is a little extreme in a way, right? Because how does God speak and how does God exactly work in our lives? I mean, these are complex questions, right? And sometimes I, I, I get like, I, I get like weary or like jealous of these people in the Bible because I'm like, whoa, like. God must have spoken to Moses word for word, like verbatim. Show up in my life, God, and I'll listen to you. Like, do you ever wonder that? Like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Like, I'm ready. But actually, when you look at verse 22, it says, the prophet speaks and you will only know by whether the word comes true or to pass or not. Oh, turns out people in the Bible even, right, only knew by faith. They didn't know. When a prophet comes or when the, the Lord speaks and when they're making life decisions, they're praying and they're, they didn't even have the Bible as we know it, they didn't know. They had to trust. They had to believe. They had to take risks, right? Because I think one of the reasons why people of God don't want to live in God-centered lives is because of uncertainty. We want to get it right. And somehow, ironically, that pushes us from getting it right. Of course, at the bottom of it, it's all sin, right? It's all sinfulness. But I really thought about this. I, I asked myself, well, why, why don't I, and I don't want to use you as an example because I don't know your hearts like that, but like, why don't I, right, full confession, I'm a pretty selfish person. And when it comes down to it, I live a self-centered life. In my prayer life and in my Bible reading, in the way that I carry my life together, I have to tell you that I'm actually self-centered. I want to know what I want to know more than what God wants to tell me. 
That's where I'm at. Sorry to disappoint you. But I ask myself, why don't I want more of God? Why don't I want to live more God-centered life? And I realized, and I'm sure there are many reasons, but I realized it's because God-centered living can feel really burdensome. Is that right? I mean, who has the time, right, to sit down and pray about things and really wrestle and then go through making life decisions this way? Doesn't it seem lazy, maybe even unproductive, right? We're conditioned in this capitalistic, consumerist world where we have to constantly be pressured and even conditioned, I might say, to produce and produce well, right? And we have time to sit down and pray about things. And does God even listen? Like, am I speaking to thin air or like to an empty wall? And is God really coming through in my life as I wanted it to? Because to be honest, it's like half and half at best, right? And then, yeah, some people have told me like, oh, yeah, God is telling you no, no is, no is an answer. I don't want to hear no for an answer. Like, I want to get a yes. I don't know if I'm the only one. God-centered living can feel burdensome, backwards, lazy, unproductive, all of that. But friends, people of God, I want to tell you today that it is only when we live a God-centered life, only when we live a God-centered life that we can truly produce and truly win in this life. Amen? And I say this because of Jesus, known as the Messiah. Here's what I mean. The next few minutes is going to get a, a little theologically uh, heavy. So, you know, if you have questions or if you disagree, I don't know, you know, raise your hand, okay? <laughs> let, let me know, all right? Uh, when we read this text, right, I think the question that, we all should have, I hope that we have, is who is this prophet? God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses among you, and it is to him, to him you shall listen. Who is this person? Is it Joshua, the one who follows Moses? Or is it Nathan, the one who called out David, King David, man after God's own heart? Is it Samuel, the Lord's anointed? I mean, who, are, who is this person? Scholars say, for many, many reasons, that this prophet is none other than Jesus, God's own son. This happens to be a Christ prophecy in the Old Testament. And I want to share with you just a few reasons, right? Just a few reasons. And it's from Matthew, right? All, all the Bible, if you read, it's really interconnected, right? And Matthew, which by the way is the Jewish gospel, right? It's a story of life and ministry, account of life and ministry of Jesus that's been written to the Jewish people, Right? in hoping to convince them, let them know that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah, the anointed one from God, right? Because he fulfills all of these prophecies of the old. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, this is the scene of Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most prolific work, the most significant word that God has spoke, Jesus has spoken, right? Matthew 1, 5, 1, the first portion of it says he went up on the mountain, him being Jesus, right? Now, that seems like a very mundane thing to do, right? He went up on the mountain. Right? Turns out, in Exodus 19, 24, and 33, three times, Moses is told, we are told, that Moses went up on the mountain. Right? And turns out, out of the, all of the Old Testament prophets, right, Moses is actually the only one 
that Bible describes word for word that he went up to the mountain three times. The author of Matthew, Apostle Matthew, is intentionally making a mosaic prophetic imagery in going up to the mountain here. And then the very next following phrase is that Jesus sits down. He went up on a mountain and he sits down to teach his people. Well, guess what? In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses goes up the mountain, mountain of God, and he sits down. Scholars say he sits down to receive the word of God, which is eventually the, the Ten Commandments written in stone tablets. Right? All of this is not coincidence. And the mountain, the mountain that they're speaking of, in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, it's with the definite article the, right? The. And what does that refer to? That means there was a previous mountain that the text was referring to, right? In order for it to have the mountain, that mountain. Well, guess what? There is actually no mountain in Matthew chapter 1 through 4. So the mountain then is actually the mountain, the mountain of God, Horeb, that's mentioned in this text, otherwise known as Sinai, where Moses received God's commandments, the Ten Commandments. It's all the same thing here. This is a connection and an imagery of Jesus going up as the new Moses. And when God says, the Lord your God will raise up you a prophet like me, like Moses, is none other than Jesus. And there are other reasons to that, but if you can buy it with me for a second here, right? Okay, all right, I didn't know that maybe, but that sounds cool, right? Okay, Jesus, the new Moses. Well, what does that have to do with me and God-centeredness? Because after all, that's the concern, right? How can we as his church live a more God-centered life? What does that have to do with it? Jesus is the new Moses? That sounds cool. All right, fine. Bear with me as I unpack and theologize just, just a minute or two more. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God. In fact, the Word was God. And I think many of you know that the Word here, logos, is a theologically complex term that refers to Jesus. Have you ever thought about why? Like, why is Jesus known as the word? Is it like, he's like, like he's into hip-hop, like, yo, what's the word? <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was scared last service, too. Like, I thought no one's going to laugh. Now it's going to feel really dumb, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Um, but really, though, like, why? Like, why the word? Well, you may know that John 1 is a reference to Genesis 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That goes to show us that Jesus being called the Word in direct reference to Genesis 1, God's creative power, right? How did God create again? By speaking. By word he created. And this is called divine fiat if you ever want to sound like really smart and like Pharisaic, I guess. Uh, divine fiat, okay? <laughs> he spoke, let there be light, I don't know if he like directly like human way spoke, right? But theologically speaking, he spoke to create. That means Jesus being the word of God is referring to the very same power and the eternal and the transcendent life before sinfulness that God has brought upon universe when there was nothing left. 
right? Only God can create something out of nothing. That's called ex nihilo, right? Many of you are wonderfully creative people. You make a lot of these things, but that's all imitation of God, right? His creative power, the image of God. Only God can create something out of nothing. Well, guess what? That power, his character, is all represented in his son, Jesus, who is known as the Word. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Jesus is created. That's heresy, right? In fact, that's a historical heresy that the church had to fight off, right? Jesus is not created. He's begotten son of God, second person of Trinity, fully man and fully God. I think we have all heard this maybe. But what I am saying is whatever God was doing in the beginning to create something out of nothing, bringing life before sin, was in Jesus. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, 9 says it this way. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. It says in Jesus, everything that God is about, all that God had to and wants to say, even to the beyond of our scope and understanding, because God is infinite and we are finite. That means philosophically, we're not able to register and understand the fullness of God. But even then, the entire fullness of whoever God is and whatever he is like and whatever he does is in his son, Jesus Christ. When we're talking about God-centered living, we're talking about a life and heart that says, God, I want to know more about what you want to tell me rather than I just want to know what's in it for me. So answer me these questions. We're going from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And I think a lot of times the church can make a lot out of it. We can even psych ourselves out by feeling guilty like, oh, I'm not praying and I'm not reading. Of course, I want you to read and pray. But guess what? In the word, it says you need to focus and worry and concern yourself with about one thing. Are you looking to Christ, his son? In him, the whole fullness of God is represented. So church, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you feel like you're self-centered like me. Or I don't know if you feel pretty good about like your devil time or oh, my church attendance and my service level. I don't know any of that. But I can tell you, there is one thing one thing that I want you to do that I think God is telling us to do is to look and listen and obey to his son, Jesus. In him, the fullness of the Father is found. So where are you with him? Where are you? Is your spiritual life about reading the Bible, how many chapters I read, or how many minutes or hours that I have prayed, or not having sex, or not doing drugs, or not doing this and doing this and not doing that, being judgmental, whatever, coming out to church. No. The fullness of God, living a God-centered life, is about Christ, His only Son. In Him, the whole fullness of God is revealed. So look to Him, church, because that is the prophet like Moses, that God has raised. And it is to him and him only that you and I are called to listen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we need your grace. We need your mercy.
And I know that even though I spoke and yelled and, you know, passionately as I can to your people here about the importance of listening to your son Jesus and that being the godly-centered life that we want to pursue, I know that I'm not doing it. I know that I don't have the strength to do it on my own, and none of us do. And so I pray for your spirit. I pray for your grace and your mercy to inspire us, to, 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 to fasten our faith, to deepen our hearts, so that each one of us here at Living Hope and those who are watching online and wherever else they may be can truly turn towards what it is that you want to reveal to us. And you have already revealed all that you are in your son, Jesus. So help us, God, to love Jesus, to adore him, to treasure him, to pursue him and to follow him and to listen to him, God. For that is the prophet, like Moses, that you have raised for us, God. And we pray in your name. Amen. Church, um, we're going to practice what we have just talked about. And we're going to listen to Jesus. And so I'm going to ask the elders uh, to come up uh, wherever you are, uh, in the patio or in the sanctuary. If you're at home, please feel free to join us uh, with your own elements. We're going to um, pass out the elements to you. And if you are a believer, doesn't matter if you feel like you're not close enough with God, right? That's not what I'm asking. If you believe that Jesus is the Lord in your heart, and you confess it in your mouth, please take the elements. And if you're not, then please don't take the elements. But the elders are gonna start passing out the elements now. If you can hold on to it prayerfully and we'll all take it together. The Lord Jesus, at the night before his betrayal, he took, his, he took the bread and he broke it in half and told his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And he also poured out a cup of wine. And he told his disciples, this is my blood shed for you. And he also said, do this in remembrance of me. So what we're doing here now is to remember the Lord Jesus, his bodily sacrifice, even though he was the full revelation of God himself, that he came in a human body and that he broke that body freely and he rose again so that we may share in the fullness of God with you. And so as you receive the elements, would you please prayerfully think about, reflect, give thanks to the Lord for his son Jesus and we'll take it together once everyone has received the elements.
promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Your faithfulness I'm still in your hands This is my confidence You never failed me Church, this is his body and his blood broken and shed for you. Let's take it together. And would you join me in praying? So Father, we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus Christ freely shed his body and his blood for us. Lord, we don't have anything to pay you back for your grace, but do help us to search for your son, to listen to him, God, for we believe in him, the fullness of who you are has been revealed, and we thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name.